Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Dyslexia Devoted, the podcast dedicated to building awareness, understanding, and strategies to help those with dyslexia. I'm your host, Lisa Parnello, dyslexia therapist and founder of Parnello Education Services. Join me as we dive into today's episode of Dyslexia Devoted. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Do you hear special terms in education and IEP terms and suddenly think they're speaking a totally different language? Welcome to episode 32 of Dyslexia Devoted, and today we're focusing on all the words and terms that you need to know for your next IEP or educational evaluation meeting. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this week's episode comes with a free cheat sheet of all of these terms, so don't worry about writing them down. Just sit back and listen to them and download the cheat sheet at parnelloeducation.com forward slash IEP terms. No spaces. It'll also be linked right where you're listening to this episode. Today's episode is part of a month of learning that I have in store for you, so be sure to tune in next week too when you'll find out more about those upcoming webinars I've been mentioning. All right, on to today's focus, IEP terms. As I was making this cheat sheet for you, I was trying to decide the best way to put it in order, and originally I was thinking alphabetical, but then I decided realistically most of these terms are going to come in a pretty logical order because that's the way IEP meetings work, and so I'm going to go about them in the order you're most likely to hear the words in your very first IEP meeting. The first term is a student study team. This actually happens before a child gets an IEP. It's a team of educators that helps determine if the student needs short-term interventions or further support and should be referred for special education. It is usually a group of educators, so it's usually maybe a special educator and a general education teacher and usually some sort of administrator and sometimes even the school psychologist. And these people work together to determine if a student should be referred for an IEP and an evaluation. Sometimes a school determines that a student doesn't really qualify for an IEP, or maybe they had an IEP and they don't really need that level of support anymore, in which case you might get the term 504 plan. And a 504 plan is a set of accommodations for that student to use to access their curriculum and education due to a disability or learning difference. So it doesn't change anything that the child learns, it just changes how they can learn. It includes things like accommodations for breaks, or the ability to use audiobooks, or sometimes they're allowed to use a calculator, but it doesn't change any of the tasks that they're doing in their educational programming. Other times, a child will qualify for a full individual education program, also known as an IEP. It's a program that's put in place by a public school to provide services for a student with a learning difference or a developmental challenge. Now, when we talk about IEP meetings, there's usually a couple different versions of an IEP meeting, and they each have different lengths and purposes. So an initial IEP meeting is the very first individual education program that a child gets, and that meeting often takes a lot longer because there's a lot more evaluations to go through. It's starting from scratch. It's the very first time most people are seeing some of these assessments, and it's the very first time they're creating goals for a student. So that first initial IEP often takes a lot longer as they determine the best programming for a student. After that, they get a little bit easier. So an annual IEP will review all of the previous year's goals and then set up new goals. 
And that meeting tends to be a lot shorter because it's not really anything new. It's just more making adjustments to the plan each year. Then after a couple years, you will end up with a triennial IEP. So a triennial, tri meaning three. So it happens every three years and the student gets that full battery of assessments all over again that they used when they first got that initial IEP to see if they still qualify for services. Sometimes the results will increase the services if a student needs more support. For example, if the workload got harder in the class and then the student fell further behind instead of catching up to their peers, so they might start getting more services after that IEP. Or sometimes after that set of assessments, then there's a reduction of services if the student has shown that they've improved and are closer to grade level and don't need as much intervention and support. Now, no matter which meeting you're in, you will always get a copy of the procedural safeguards And the procedural safeguards are the legal rights of families, such as the right to participate in IEP meetings, examine those educational records, and to get an independent educational evaluation. I know I've seen many families get that independent educational evaluation when they don't agree with the evaluation that the school has done. It is something that there's an actual process to apply to get an an IEE, that's what the nickname for it is. And if you follow that process, sometimes the outside assessor might get slightly different results than what the school says initially. So sometimes parents will take that route if the school does not give them an IEP that they think their child needs and deserves. Now in an IEP, there's a whole bunch of different assessments that are given to students when they're in that assessment process, either for the initial meeting or in those triennial ones. One of them might be a functional behavioral assessment, and that's when a child is acting out in school and sometimes getting into more trouble. That assessment determines the cause of a specific behavior and the purpose that it serves. So for example, if a kid is having tantrums or walking out of class, there's usually a reason for it. It's not like they're just doing it to be bad. A functional behavior assessment will help them give an indicator of, oh, it's every time they're asked to write something. That's when they cause a ruckus in class. And so it helps the team figure out how to make a plan. And when they get that plan, the plan is called a behavior improvement plan also called a BIP, B-I-P, and that BIP gets implemented to replace an undesired behavior with a more socially appropriate response to the problem. And in basic terms, that means when the child encounters that challenging thing that previously caused them to act out, they now have a new strategy to use instead, such as an ability to ask for help quietly without drawing attention from classmates. Sometimes that child gets to put a card on their desk that says five minute break, and then they go do something for five minutes and come right back once they've reset. Um, So there's different kinds of behavior improvement plans, and usually they all involve some sort of reward system for using a better behavior than what they were using before when they encounter that same challenge that they had. Pretty much every IEP assessment will include testings for educational skills as well. I'm focusing more of my educational skills on reading because if you're listening to this podcast, it probably means your child struggles with reading. Assessments for reading will include some certain vocabulary terms you may not be familiar with. So one is phonemic awareness, which is the ability to hear, separate, and isolate sounds within words. And struggles with phonemic awareness are a common indicator of dyslexia. For example, if they have the word sprint and you told the student to say all the sounds, they might actually just do S-P-I-T and they might miss the R and the N. And so by measuring the student's phonemic awareness, it measures one piece of dyslexia. Another piece that most educational evaluations will measure is decoding. And decoding is the ability to read words, especially breaking them down into sounds and figure out those unfamiliar words. And the opposite of that, of course, 
is encoding, and that is the ability to spell words. As they go through all the assessments, at some point during this meeting, they will start talking about the least restrictive environment. Sometimes they will use the acronym LRE. And that least restrictive environment term refers to the amount of time in the school day that the student is with a typical general education setting. That's because this term was put into place, especially after long ago, many students in special education were just put into a special room in the back of the school that was away from everybody else and then stayed there for years. And so the goal of the least restrictive environment was to make sure students get the most amount of time with typical developing peers that they can while still getting the supports that they need. So that least restrictive environment means that the most amount of time they can spend with a general education setting while still getting their needs met. So that amount of time can vary greatly. For example, a student with Down syndrome might spend a significantly more amount of time in their special education classroom, as opposed to a student with dyslexia that might just only spend reading time in a special education classroom. And so it just depends on the student themselves and how they're able to perform in that general education setting. Another term that you will hear often as an acronym, which is FAPE, stands for a free, appropriate public education. You will often hear it worded in the phrase, an offer of FAPE, and it is what the school district is offering for an IEP to support the child's need that might include the number of minutes of support in each category, such as the amount of time in general education versus special education, and the number of minutes of support that they get. So it might say they get 30 minutes of speech support a week, and they get 90 minutes of reading support a week, and they get 20 minutes of OT support a week. I'm just making up those numbers. And additionally, that offer of FAPE will also include the location of where that child is getting services. Depending on the district, sometimes districts set up their special education departments differently, and often there will be one campus that specializes more in behavioral struggles and another campus that specializes more in learning differences. And so sometimes when they offer FAPE, it's not necessarily at your public school home school. Often when they offer FAPE, it can be at the school that your student is already at, but sometimes it is actually at a different location within the district and then they provide transportation to get to that other school setting so that the child gets the support that they need. And it's a way of schools trying to save money. And also sometimes it has to do with space. Uh, They just don't have enough rooms available to have a specialty for each type of learning difference there is. So they will try to cluster them to have all the kids that need the same kind of support in the same location. Another term that you will hear is extended school year, also known as ESY. And that's additional time to work on those IEP goals in the summer. So it's basically summer school that is free and included in the child's educational programming. When they start offering services, you will often hear different specialists be referred to as part of the IEP program. Sometimes you will hear a physical therapist, and that's somebody who helps a person move their body. Physical therapist is less common in the school setting unless your child has a physical impairment, such as maybe cerebral palsy or something like that, that they might need more of that physical help. More commonly, you will hear a child getting occupational therapy support, and that occupational therapist, known as an OT, is a specialist that helps the child perform daily living tasks, such as improving their fine motor skills, like writing with a pencil, or their gross motor skills, such as throwing a ball. Another specialist you will often hear is part of the team is a speech and language pathologist, and that specialist helps with the pronunciation of sounds and words but they also help with larger language skills, such as communicating their thoughts and ideas verbally, or you'll hear that they're working on pragmatics, and that means social skills, and being able to have good social connections with their peers. As they're going along, they will mention which accommodations a child receives. 
in their IEP meeting. And an accommodation changes how a student completes a task. And these accommodations are an essential part of that 504 plan that I mentioned earlier. Examples would include audiobooks, extra time, breaks, and a quiet testing space. If a child is more severely impacted, then they will also talk about modifications. Modifications change what the student is asked to do. Generally, because their learning difference and challenges make them unable to perform at grade level, so they have to make changes as to what the child is being asked to do. If a child can't read a three-letter word, they're obviously not going to read a chapter book by themselves. But sometimes they will just use an accommodation instead and say they can listen to the chapter book. So it just kind of depends on what the child's needs are on what they decide is the most appropriate. Now, as the school starts offering services, you will hear two phrases used a lot, and that is pull-out intervention and push-in intervention. I'm going to use an SLP, so speech and language pathologist, as a way to give examples of this. A pull-out intervention would mean the student is leaving the general education classroom and going somewhere else to get support. So if the student's with an SLP, they might get pull-out intervention to learn articulation, like how to pronounce the letters and sounds within the words so that it's easier for them to communicate or to read. A push-in intervention would be services the student receives while staying in their own classroom. So an SLP might provide push-in services for things like writing. That way the student is doing the same exact writing assignment as everybody else, and then the SLP is helping them formulate the sentences and come up with ideas and articulate their thoughts clearly on paper. There are many different ways to do pull-out and push-in intervention, depending on what kind of support they need. So sometimes it'll be reading support, sometimes it will be speech support, sometimes it might be OT support and showing them how to hold their pencil to do some of the writing activities. So it just depends on what the service is. Sometimes push-in intervention is a way of making kids not feel so ostracized and having to always leave because kids feel embarrassed sometimes that they always have to leave their classroom. And it's also a way of killing two birds with one stone because the OT can come into the classroom for writing time and help multiple students who all have OT needs. It's a way they can help multiple students at once and really lighten the load for the OT to make sure that everybody's getting the needs met, but they're not disrupting the school day nearly as much. Now, one term you will hear the very most is a specific learning disability, and that is a general term for a learning difference within a particular category, such as reading, math, or writing. And while it says specific learning disability, it's actually not that specific. It's more of a pretty broad term within a category. Let's quickly talk about what some of those specific learning differences are, and then we will wrap up for today. When we talk about learning differences, a lot of times they actually go hand in hand with a different health impairment, which is ADHD. And that means the child is having difficulty with attention, and it could be due to hyperactivity or distractibility. So sometimes they're bouncing around, and other times they're just tuning out. Or some students who are more severely impacted might have a combination of the two. They're very wiggly, can't sit still, and their brain is all over the place. Another learning difference would be an auditory processing disorder. And so you might hear that term used, especially in some of the IEP assessments. They might talk about auditory processing. And that has to do with the difficulty processing information that's been heard. Often the student only takes part of the information, and then that makes it really difficult for them to keep up, especially if a teacher talks a lot and uses a lot of lectures, and the student then needs some visual support, such as pictures, to go along with what's being said to make sure they follow along. Now, the one you guys are probably most familiar with if you're listening to Dyslexia Devoted is an SLD in reading, also known as dyslexia. And that's a neurological difference involving how the brain processes language and it's characterized by poor reading fluency and struggles with spelling. One that many people are less familiar with is dysgraphia, which is the difficulty with letter formation is the learning difference that is often seen with the physical mechanics of writing, including poor letter formation, spaces between letters and words being the wrong amount, 
and poor positioning on a line. And in common layman's terms, it means it looks like a kindergartner wrote it when they're definitely not a kindergartner. Another term you might hear is a disorder of written expression, which means they have trouble communicating in writing. They struggle to express themselves through writing and they can't form coherent sentences. They might repeat themselves or they have part of the thoughts in their head and only part of it actually make it to the paper and they can't really convey information to the reader the way they need to. And SLD in mathematics, also known as dyscalculia, is a learning difference in math and it affects their ability to complete math calculations and the inability to understand number sense. They often struggle to know amounts and comparisons to one another, and they can't tell you if an answer actually makes sense. A lot of times, even if kids are bad at math, they may be like, hmm, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. There's no way that answer could be this. Kids with dyscalculia don't know the difference. Every answer is about the same to them. It doesn't make sense either way, no matter what they write down. Often they will struggle with number sense. Another term you may not be familiar with is a developmental coordination disorder. And that has to do with physical coordination. And you will actually see that pretty commonly if a student has dysgraphia. A coordination disorder means the child appears really clumsy. They might struggle with fine motor skills, such as writing with that pencil, or gross motor skills, which is large movements like doing jumping jacks, or the skills that they need to play soccer or basketball and throw balls and catch. And so sometimes kids who are a little bit more clumsy might get an OT as part of their services to help with that developmental coordination disorder. And last but not least, you might hear the term other health impairment. This category includes any other health condition that affects the child's ability to learn, such as ADHD or a seizure disorder. All right, so I know this is not a totally comprehensive list because there's a lot and there's no way you'd want to listen to all that. I intentionally left out things like autism because that's not really the focus of this podcast. So there's all sorts of resources. So if you have other terms that you really want to understand and know, be sure to check out understood.org and they have all sorts of parent-friendly terminology to help you better understand the different terms. But if you want just the notes of all the terms that I have talked to you about today, don't forget that all of this is all written down for you on my handy dandy little guide at parnelloeducation.com forward slash IEP terms. All right, I know being a human dictionary doesn't sound like a great idea for an episode, but I often find that parents are the most confused by all of these crazy terms that people used. So if you made it all the way to the end, thank you. And I think you'll be better for it because these terms are used all the time. And if you aren't an educator, they seem really foreign to you and it all sounds like gibberish. So before your next IEP meeting, make sure that you look at that cheat sheet that I made for you so that you have all the terms that you need to know. And if I missed any, or if you have any questions, just send me an email. Just shoot me a message at lisa at parnelloeducation.com, or you can find Parnello Education on Facebook and Instagram and send me a message there. Whatever is easier for you. All right, that's it for today. If you have any questions at all, send them my way. I'd love to answer them for you. See you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Dyslexia Devoted. Join us for our next episode by subscribing to this podcast as we devote each episode to different aspects of dyslexia. See you next time.